You are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. It is Live from a state almost as cold as Texas, it's the 252 Sports Talk Radio is done by academics. I'm Chris Garrett, joined by... I'm Chris Moore. And Sam Mulberry. Uh, guys, it's been uh, another... This is an intermittent podcast. I think we've moved beyond occasional to... Periodically, one of us will just get an idea and say, hey, it's been three months, let's do a short podcast. And so we're going to do a short podcast for you, mostly about uh, kind of music, protest, and civil religion. But before we get to that, uh, any Super Bowl thoughts before we bid farewell to the NFL season? I don't know if you guys watch closely or enjoyed the game, enjoyed any ads particularly. I, If I could describe the Super Bowl outcome it, in two words, they would be insufferably ineluctable. Um, <laughs> Tom Brady is about eight months older than me, and that in and of itself is frustrating, um, but also sort of mollifying in a kind of way. But I, I'm not sure that anybody has ever been as great in sports as he has, and also as someone who I care the least for. <laughs> <laughs> all right and that's the final word on the goat conversation thanks chris for settling that for us sure i couldn't agree more all right so chris i think i'll have you get this started because you came in a day or two ago saying hey we should do a micropod about this so the this is ongoing discussion controversy surrounding sports national anthem and athlete protests so I think we got two or three versions of this. Uh, I'll let you go first and do the NBA version of it. What what happened with the Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban and then uh, the association not too long ago? Sure. So let's just let me just set the stage first by saying that this topic hits at the exact sweet spot of why we fed the two five two in the first place. This was a podcast designed to get us prepped and ready to teach history and politics two five two, or his, the history and politics of sports, which is H I S P O S two five two, and. We um, Here we have a case of the intersection of politics in the form of the national anthem, politics in the form of when the national anthem gets played, history in terms of how long and why we've been playing the national anthem at sporting events, and then this really sort of interesting current phenomenon. So the Dallas Mavericks, owned by Mark Cuban, to almost no fanfare, began their season with their preseason games and their home games not playing the national anthem. And this would, this would take a while to sort of become a, a, something of note because uh, there's no fans. At least for the first 10 games, there were no fans whatsoever. And then I think they welcomed in a bunch of sort of vaccinated first responders and folks like that. And so it wasn't until people started to trickle into the games to say, oh, they're not playing the national anthem before mm -hmm. tip-off. Mm -hmm. um, Cuban said at that point that this was a decision the team made. Um, along with his consent, uh, after meeting with community representatives, not quite clear what community representatives are, but this members of the, of the Dallas Mavericks community didn't feel like playing the national anthem represented them. And um, Adam, he said that he had passed this by Adam Silver. At least that's what Cuban said. Uh, Silver has since taken a much firmer line on this. This all, actually made it all the way up to a White House press briefing. Jen Psaki had to address this issue. Um, and now Silver has said that uh, playing the national anthem before NBA games is league policy and the Malice Mavericks will be returning to playing the national anthem. That's case one. Chris, what's case two? 
Well, can I just add a little bit to case one? Can I just read a little bit from what Cuban said um, to explain why they were not playing the anthem? Because I mean, we've mm-hmm. we've seen this be a site of conflict and protest before, and you know, it doesn't start with uh, Colin Kaepernick's take a knee protest, but you know, in recent memory, that's that's maybe where this goes back to. So here's what Cuban said. Uh, We respect and always have respected the passion people have for the anthem in our country. I have always stood for the anthem with a hand over the heart, no matter where I hear it played. But we also hear the voices of those who do not feel the anthem represents them. We feel they also need to be respected and heard because they have not been heard. The hope is those who feel passionate about the anthem being played will be just as passionate in listening to those who do not feel it represents them. And maybe a kind of misplaced hope there. We don't tend to get passionate about listening to others in this country. But... Um, I'm, I'm reading here from Jamel Hill, wrote an article about this in The Atlantic, in which she argued uh, the Mavericks should have held their ground, she writes, because playing the anthem shouldn't be a pregame ritual in American sports, not during a time when many people, including many athletes of color, are deeply uncomfortable with how patriotic symbols have been weaponized to undermine and diminish the humanity of black and brown Americans. So among many other things, and with Kaepernick, this goes back to protesting police brutality against uh, people of color. Um, she goes on to write about Francis Scott Key, the author of the anthem, Being a Slaveholder. I think the third verse of the national anthem actually references slavery. He's a white supremacist. You know, so th- there's history here, too, on top of any kind of contemporary meanings of the anthem. So the, when Chris came in my office and said this, I, I, mean, I think you had in mind the Mavericks. And I said, oh, have you heard about Bluefield College? That's and right. Who has? Right. Bluefield College is a small Southern Baptist school. It's in Virginia, right across the border from West Virginia and Appalachia. It's, uh, I think, a member of the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, along with Bethel and about 120 other schools that are broadly evangelical around the country. So here, too, this had started very quietly sometime in January. And I don't know if these two stories even connect. Like maybe Bluefield's uh, men's basketball team maybe got the idea from the Mavericks or on their own decided uh, um, to, I think they knelt for the national anthem. Mm -hmm. So the anthem was played, but they knelt. And so this went on a few games, and then someone brought this to the attention of Bluefield's college president, who issued a statement saying that we uh, don't want to offend alumni, donors, and friends. And this is disrespectful. It detracts from the mission and the um, perception of Bluefield College, who we are. It's divisive. And he suspended the players, and so Bluefield forfeited their next game. And since then, the players have agreed to continue playing and look for other ways to protest. But it got a lot of national coverage, you know, all the way from like inside higher ed, a kind of trade publication to ESPN, Fox News, all sorts of national media attention. So a much smaller scale than the Dallas Mavericks and Mark Cuban, who's a kind of larger than life character to start with. But, um, you know, some of the same kinds of issues. And if you read one of the players as a senior from Norfolk, um, it's kind of the main spokesman. He articulated a lot of the same things that Jamel Hill said and also did talk about police brutality and kind of harken back to Kaepernick. Um, as well. So that, that was where my mind went because I do research in the field of like Christian higher ed and uh, I've been thinking a lot about um, what civil religion looks like in the wake of the Trump era. Oh, and by the way, apparently another piece of this is there had been a Trump rally, uh, if not on the campus of Bluefield, kind of like kitty corner to it or nearby. And so I think that was also part of what rankled some of the athletes is that for them, the Trump era had weaponized patriotic symbols and they didn't want any part of that, or they wanted to um, uh, use that occasion then to draw attention to their causes and their concerns about America as a racialized society. 
Well, I'll only say that I, I think we're we're both paying a lot of attention to the weaponization of religious symbols, weaponization of patriotic symbols, and I'm really struck still by the presence of many Christian religious symbols at the insurrection at the Capitol, mm-hmm. including banners that said Jesus saves, uh, crosses, and, and so forth. And I think that's that's not the same thing as the national anthem at a sporting event, but there there's this. Um, semiotics of, of, of religious symbols uh, in the midst of, of deep contention. And as Christians, I think we should say it's profoundly problematic. Yeah, and it's why I think Cuban is actually on the right track. You know, when he says that he gets why people are passionate, this is, and patriotism is a deeply felt emotion. Um, it has connections with sporting events. It's often, it's attached to military culture, which it doesn't have to be, but that, especially in, in football, that, that's how this usually works. Mm-hmm. The idea that we maybe we need to be equally passionate about or equally um, uh, convicted to the need to listen to other people's concerns. You know, I, I do think that is a necessary part of any kind of pluralistic society. And you know, as we kind of think about how a divided country moves forward, can two Americas ever bridge their gaps? Like, we do have to find a way to be passionate about that somehow. And I don't know if this is the right venue for it, but I think he's identified something that we need to learn to do. I mean, what's interesting to me is, I guess I generally tend to be suspicious as a Christian about civil religion to start with. I mean, I will stand for the national anthem. If I hold my hand over my heart, I'm not necessarily thinking about the country. I usually am thinking about soldiers who have died, and specifically mm. a cousin of mine who was traumatized by the war in Iraq and ended up committing suicide. That, that's how I've chosen to use that moment. It feels more honest and appropriate, because I do worry that that's a kind of ceremony imbued with holiness that's really not the same thing as the kingdom of God and can distract us from it. And as I'm sure we've talked about before, there are, say, Mennonite colleges that won't play the national anthem at all because of those concerns. Right. What's been interesting, though, in the early days of the Biden administration is the way that civil religion is being used for other purposes. You know, the Joe Biden's inauguration, his inaugural address were some of the most civil religious things I've seen in recent memory and all in service of national unity. I mean, if you read his address, those are the themes, and there's a kind of sacredness to it, and there's a kind of ritual to it. And I mean, that is, I think, really what a national anthem is supposed to do. Whenever I talk about nationalism with my European history students, I quote Benedict Anderson. He was famous for saying that a nation is this imagined community. I don't know 330 million other Americans, even with Facebook. I know maybe a fraction of a percent of them. So how do we bind together a nation? And so there are rituals. And he writes a lot about national anthems being this embodied experience where you're sharing presence with other people, you're hearing, you're listening to them, you're singing with them, you're being reminded of what you stand for. Like, it's a really powerful thing that does transcend all these divisions. And so, like, I I think this actually cuts across some typical sort of political divisions. Like, I mean, is Biden right to push us towards unity and to use these kind of civil religious rituals to do so? Or is that brushing off the concerns that pro and college athletes have about Mm -hmm. um, being put on display in that sense? And they have the right then to protest in the same circumstance. I think the answer is yes. Um, Anytime you uh, make an effort to pull to the center, you're going to pull away from the margins. Mm -hmm. And athletes protesting police brutality are protesting in the voice of people who have been on the margins, who have have not been heard, who have not been taken account of. And Biden has a a very tough road to hoe here. He's got to, um, at the one hand, he wants to try to inculcate a sense of national unity. There is an attempt to try to heal some of the polarizing divisiveness of the last four, I would even argue the last eight years. Um, 
And, and yet at the same time, um, he's doing that with this acknowledgement that you can't pull without pulling pulled. And, and there's this, it's, it's almost, um, it's almost Newtonian, right? You pull to the center and there's, there's stretching at the margins. And I think we're seeing that here. Let me add a third kind of version of this, because I think one thing that we strive to do, and, and I think did pretty well in the class, is to put all these questions in historical perspective, and then also in international comparative political perspective. Uh, so, I mean, the first thing to say here is the National Anthem has a history I mean, itself, and then as an event at a sporting event. Uh, I mean, it, it has not always been part of sports in this country. It goes back. I was hoping to, you talk about this. Yeah, I mean, it, it goes back to World War One, famously, and, and maybe there are other examples. But as something you just expect would naturally precede a baseball game or be part of the seventh inning stretch, it, it's an expression of patriotism in the midst of World War One, which I think we should add was a time when there was coercion against uh, dissent, right? And I mean, I'm sure there were people say German Americans who didn't want to be fighting or Irish Americans didn't want to be on the side of the British. I don't know if anyone actually took a knee then, but you know, that probably was a difficult moment for them. And that was a time when baseball players would parade before games marching, carrying their bats as rifle. I mean, like that, that's the context for it originally. And now it's kind of entered just habit and custom. I think we've lost sight of the fact that there was a long time when sports was not preceded by the national anthem. Now in this country, we just assume it at all sorts of levels we play a national anthem or something like it before a sporting event. As far as I know, it's just the United States and Canada that do this apart from international competition, right? It's one thing, for example, in the world of soccer, I mean, not American football, uh, I mean, at the international level, if you're playing a friendly, if you're playing qualifying, if you're in the World Cup or the European Championships, that's a big part of the nationalism is both teams stand there, fans and players alike sing as lustily as they can the words of their national anthem. That doesn't happen, though, at club level soccer. In, English, in the Premier League in England, the Bundesliga in Germany, in Serie A, in, in La Liga, they do not proceed the game. Sometimes there's a team song, like Sam and I went to a Premier, actually it was an FA Cup match uh, at West Ham United a couple of years ago in London Stadium, and they have a song, and I can't even remember what the, the source of the song. I mean, often these are songs from like kind of pop culture, Broadway, pop music, right? Like they're, they're songs, and that's part of like the club culture. They don't sing God Save the Queen, or they don't sing Jerusalem or other English kind of national anthems. And instead, what's been happening ever since the Premiership ship rebooted or restarted after a COVID break last summer is that for about five seconds before the kickoff, everyone, players, referees, coaches, journalists, everyone in the stadium takes a knee for five seconds. Uh, and it's, it, and at least as you listen to the commentary, the announcers will say, let's remember, there's no room for racism. Mm -hmm. And on uniforms, everyone has a patch saying no room for racism. And often the African or black players will, will raise a fist or, I mean, um, okay. but it's not just black players. It's, it's European and Latin American players and Asian right. players are doing the same thing. And it's entirely, as far as I can tell, uncontroversial. And they're still doing this. Yeah, we're going on almost uh, like nine, 10 months of doing this now. Now it hasn't stopped racism. Every week you hear right. some reminder of some player has been bombarded on Twitter with racist slurs by someone from another club, right? Or their own club. Um, but that, that's kind of interesting. Like there, there's no controversy about protesting the national anthem because it isn't there. And instead the protest almost occupies the ritualistic space of the national anthem in these other leagues, or at least in the Premier League. Yeah, I'm, I, I understand what you're saying, Chris, and I'm not sure that it quite does. 
Uh, what I would suggest is it occupies the same space temporally, right? You know, this, in the time period, you usually have a national anthem. They're doing five seconds of, of, of kneeling instead. But I think you agree in sort of the Benedict Anderson frame that what we what is happening in the United States and in terms of the national anthem has been much more deeply enculturated, much more deeply inculcated, which is why it's politically fraught mm-hmm. compared to this moment that's being taken by the premiership teams and, and other European league teams, um, which is important, but is not deeply sentimentalized. Uh, true. Well, I mean, as far as I know, like, I mean, I also should add, like, all I know is what I see on like Peacock and NBC broadcasts or on YouTube clips yeah. later. I don't know how people, and there aren't actually fans in the stands either at most of these, or there are only a couple thousand. But in the sense, like, there's a kind of moment that's supposed to symbolize here's what we value, who's who we are or who we want to be, which I think is partly what a national anthem is supposed to do. Um, mm-hmm. Or to remind you of a history or of a struggle or something. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's a, to some extent. That's why I find in terms of civic religion, the idea of taking a knee so utterly fascinating mm-hmm. because the alternative has often been, well, the players just stay in the locker room. They're actually on the field uh, standing in at attention for the national anthem. And that's seen by many as somewhat more uncontroversial. But from a pure performative standpoint, uh, going back to Kaepernick, Kaepernick made a very conscious and somewhat informed decision about how to, why he was taking a knee. And this was a symbol of not of still engaging still respecting the flag, still being part of the polity, and at the same time recognizing that he had been hobbled by the polity um, or the plight of African-Americans had been hobbled by the polity. And that was an attempt to sort of say all that with one simple physical act, which is very different from sort of the disengagement of just staying in the locker room. And so, and yet, because this is so sacramentalized, we can't, we can't, we can't even do that. Right. There there is one proper course of action um, during the national anthem. Yeah, I mean, what's surprising, I think you were kind of hinting towards this earlier, like, there's a part of me that wondered, you know, like, as we've often asked in this podcast in the last year, what's going to change about sports? You know, what's going to survive? What's going to go away? And there was a part of me that thought, well, because we don't have this thing where 60,000 people are gathered together, are there are some of these pregame rituals simply going to go away? And so it didn't entirely surprise me that it took a few weeks for anyone to notice that the Mavericks simply weren't playing the anthem, right? Or that the Bluefield players were protesting the anthem. We don't even... So it's interesting that it had enduring power, that its absence or its protest would still generate at least anxiety or maybe you know, actual counter-protest or you know, sanctions of different sorts. So maybe, maybe this is something that will survive COVID. Whether fans are there or not, it still needs to be part of it. Right. Okay. Well, this is a micropod, so we probably shouldn't talk too much more. But this is this is great. This is what I was hoping we get into. And you know, it, it, we're not teaching this class for another year. You're gonna be on sabbatical, so I kind of need these moments just to refresh my memory about why we teach the class, what we wanna, what we wanna talk about. All right. Well, before we go, we always do like to close with what we call three to see. Each of us have picked three upcoming sporting events from uh, different kinds of competition that uh, recommend. These are things to pay attention to, I guess, Thursday through Sunday this week. Uh, Sam, you're going to kick us off with basketball. All right. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to go with a little bit of a hard sell at first. So I'm saying Saturday, February 20th uh, at 7 p.m. The 15 and 13 Golden State Warriors face off against Charlotte and the uh, 13 and 15 Hornets. So why would you want to watch this nondescript game between middling NBA teams? Well, do you remember the 2015 and 2016 NBA seasons back before Kevin Durant joined the Golden State Warriors and they became the super team that played perfect basketball? Do you remember how much fun it was to watch Steph Curry win back-to-back MVPs and shoot the lights out on a nightly basis? 
Well, with Durant in Brooklyn and Clay Thompson still rehabbing injuries, we again get to watch Steph just take over games while taking impossibly deep threes. Steph hasn't averaged 30 points a game since 2016, but he's back over 30 in 2021, and he's averaging 36.3 points per game in February on six and a half made threes per game, shooting almost 50% from three. And just to make it more fun, you also get to watch rookie point guard LaMelo Ball, who's averaging almost 21 points a game in February, shooting almost 44% from three. This game lacks much in the way of stakes, but this is supposed to be fun, right? Well, this sounds fun to me. It sounds fun to me too. Uh, Chris, what are you going to talk about? I agree. That sounds like a blast. You know what else is a blast? What else would you expect from me? On Sunday, February 21st, number three Michigan pays a visit to Value City Arena to tip off against the number four, the Ohio State University. Now, you may recall that University of Michigan, Ohio State, uh, were unable to hold their annual football, well, let's be honest, at this point, it's a scrimmage, um, in November because of the pandemic. So this basketball game between the two teams takes on a little bit more significance. It could set the stage for which team is a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. It's also the only game slated for the two teams this season, um, unless, of course, they meet in the Final Four. Go Bucks. Okay, Can I call a timeout in three to see and ask you a question, Chris? Please. Uh, if, if the Buckeyes and Wolverines meet in the Final Four, yes. does that rise to the level of a regular football game between these two schools? Like, I mean, given where basketball oh. ranks the hierarchy for these two. Chris, can I ask you, would you rather have a plate of absolutely perfectly prepared sushi or a delicious medium rare steak? Which sounds uh, better to you? The, uh, I like sushi, but the steak. I'm sorry. There, all right. There you go. Okay. Fair That's enough. the right answer. All right. Well, someone needs to talk about something besides hoops. So let's head to Pokluka, Slovenia, where the world's best athletes are competing in their annual world championships. With all due respect to triathletes, decathletes, and Williams Estadio, I'm talking about biathletes. Not only do they have the aerobic training, strength, and agility of world-class cross-country skiers, but biathletes pause every couple miles to take out a rifle and take aim at five three- to four-inch targets 55 yards away, all while their heart beats three times per second. Because shooting is such an important and unpredictable element of biathlon, it's easy to win one year and finish 30th another. Um, you get a penalty for every shot you missed, right? But if there's anything like a dominant biathlete, it's Norwegian Johannes Tingnes Bø, who has won the overall World Cup crown the past two seasons running and will be looking to improve on the seven medals, three gold, he won at last year's World Championships in Italy. Isaiah, we've got Peacock now because we joined Xfinity and they fill in with all sorts of random sports. So Isaiah and I were up early on Sunday and we turned on biathlon and we didn't know anything about it. There was no commentary, just graphics. And we decided how long will it take us to figure out the sport. And by the end, we were like breaking it down. You know, like we we were criticizing strategy from some of the French athletes. And Sam, the the best part about biathlon, and you you mentioned you get a penalty, but there's actually like a ring of shame you have to go ski around for the penalty to slow you down. Any sport that while the game is going on shames the athletes is great. <laughs> All right, so check it out alongside those two excellent-sounding basketball games. Uh, friends, it was fun to gather this group together one more time. We'll we'll see you in May, probably at this pace, to early baseball stuff, March Madness, I don't know. All right, Chris, take it away. On behalf of my colleagues here at Belt University, you've been listening to this 252 Micropod. Please join us for all kinds of great things on the Channel 3900 uh, podcast channel. Uh, email us at channel3900 at gmail.com. Until you hear from us again, go Royals. Go Royals.